Philippians chapter 2, and we're still in this text, and I can't leave it. The Lord won't let me, won't let me leave it. And uh, I mean, of course, we're never going to do justice to it. We could stay here for an eternity, to be honest with you. But the Lord won't let me leave it. I trust it's Him and not me. We're going to be reading in Philippians 2, and we're going to go back through, and looks like, God willing, one more time, go through uh, verses 5 through um, 11. It's just so important, so critical. As a matter of fact, it's almost like the... It's almost like the uh, it's the central message of the book of Philippians. The central message of the book of Philippians, the central message of the gospel is found here, expressed here in these verses, like no other place in the Bible. We talked about this. This is way up there. This is the Mount Everest of biblical truth here. And we'll talk about that more than a minute. But we talked about that not only as to who Jesus is, but what that means to us. If a confession is worth anything, if a confession is real, confession leads to a change in conduct. We talked about the fact that belief precedes change. Belief is not only precede change, belief is the catalyst for change. Belief is the reason for change. Belief is the empowerment for change. It begins with belief. If we really do believe what we profess, it will change the way we conduct ourselves. And that's, the, that's where he's coming in on verse 27 of chapter 1. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. We talked about what does that mean? I guess if we could capture, capture it in one word, which is probably a risky thing to do. But in light of this text, if we could capture it in one word, some of them would be this, love. We talked about the fact that you know the Bible says that God is love. That love is not something that God just does. Love is God. what God is. It's who He is. It's his, he loves because it's, it's nature to love. We talked about last week how that when you read this text, it doesn't define love in the text. It doesn't talk about what love is. It talks about what love does. But as you examine what love does, you get a sense for what love is. This is the standard by which every relationship should be measured right here in this text. In any realm of life, I don't care what it is. We talked about it in relationship to husband and wife. We've talked about it in relationship between fathers and children and, and wives and husbands and employers and employees and um, neighbors. In every other realm of life, this is the standard by which every relationship should be judged, measured, and this is the aim of the Christian life. When I look at this text, I think about this, and I was sharing this with Joe this morning. I'll probably get this wrong, but I'm going to give it a shot. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. I, my richest gain I count as loss and, for, and pour contempt on all my pride. My goodness alive, there's no room, there's no end, there's no case at all. When you read this text, you can make no case for human pride. You can't slip it in unawares. You can't move it in the back door. You can't find a phrase. You can't find a, a preposition. You can't find any place. This absolutely marginalizes and kills and, and puts a death nail to human pride. God hates pride. Did you know that? There are some things that God hates, and one of them is human pride. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but pride, arrogance, and the evil way, the Lord says, I detest the Bible says that God doesn't even work through human pride and will not work through human pride. We've quoted, this, we've quoted this verse before. 
Though the Lord dwell on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the prideful man he knows from afar. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And this right here is the standard and the one occurrence on the timeline of history that God did, the act that God did, that absolutely makes a sham of human pride. Let's read it together. Will you stand, if you're physically able, with me right now as we do read it? Sacred words that it is a privilege to utter and a privilege to hear. Listen to this. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you're one of His, will you say this with me, after me? Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you have me seated? Thank you so much for standing. You want to talk about confessions and creeds? They matter. They matter to the church. We live in an age in which truth is is seen as relative. What is true for you might be a different truth for somebody else and so on and so forth. We're told that nothing is absolutely true. That absolute truth doesn't exist. By the way, if nothing is absolutely true, if truth is relative, that means nothing's absolutely true. It means that, that there's no plumb line. There's no standard of measure. We don't believe that as Christians. We have confessions that we make that we stand on and we will die on if necessary. And this is one of them. It, is, it matters about who Jesus Christ is. And it matters about what you believe about Jesus Christ. As we've said before, your eternity rises and falls based on what you believe about Jesus Christ. Now there are many people that believe about Jesus Christ and certainly believe He came and existed and He was an historical figure. Hardly anybody will take you to task on that. But to believe that He's Lord and to bow down on this side of eternity and make that confession that He is God, who became man, is the confession of the church. That's a big deal. That's no small matter. This is our confession. This is belief that leads to and is the core of salvation. To believe that God became a man and that He emptied Himself of His rights as God. Just when you think you've got a grip on human pride, just when you think maybe you're walking in humility, just when you think you'll get close to it, just take a look at the cross and you'll realize, and I will realize, we've got a long way to go. I want you to know something. That word love, that could capture this too, picking up on what we were talking about a while ago. But you know what the other word captures in this text? Just one simple but very profound and often almost seems like elusive truth, and that is this. Humility. Humility. The only stake, the only the only prospect for living and being the gospel around people that we're around and having unity in the church is humility. If we have people who are walking around preserving their pride, we will have no unity. 
And if we have no unity, then we're blaspheming the message of reconciliation by sinful man to God through Jesus Christ. We talked about the fact that either our our lives are going to confirm the gospel or they're going to be contrary to the gospel. Our confession might be, yes, yes, we affirm the gospel, but the way we live can be contrary to the gospel. And I'm going to show you in in a minute in a text that will bring holy fear upon us, I believe, in that regard. But this matter of confession, this is the central message of the Bible. This is the central message, certainly, of the book of Philippians. He's saying, if you're partners in the gospel, then this is what we believe about Jesus Christ. Not only is it what we believe about Jesus Christ, but it must be the standard by which we live. If we're going to be partners in the gospel, if we're going to have the kind of unity that the church should have, we've all got to come to a place of humility. We've got to come to a place where we do get to the base of the cross and contempt is absolutely absorbed and lavished on our sorry pride. Look what God did. He stretched it as far as it can go. Wherever you think you're exhibiting humility, look to the cross and you'll find out you've got a long way to go. Look at at what He did. Look Look how He stretched it. He stretched it as far as it can go. He's God. You can't get any higher than that. God, Jesus did not regard equality with God as something to be held on to, but emptied himself and became a man. So Jesus, who's God, takes on and clothes himself in human flesh. He is God and he's man. He's 100% God, he's 100% man. It's one of those mystery unions in the Bible that we don't understand, but brother, we flat believe. And so he, he becomes man. Okay, so he's up here at God. He humbles himself and becomes a man and becomes obedient. He becomes a bondservant. He makes himself of no reputation. He empties himself, taking the form of a bondservant, which means slave. It means he owns nothing. Jesus said the Son of Man doesn't have a place to put his head. He went into Jerusalem, rode a donkey into Jerusalem as it was prophesied in the Old Testament, had to borrow the donkey. Then he was buried in a borrowed tomb. He had nothing. He emptied himself, but yet possessed everything. It's the paradox of Christian living. To have nothing, but yet when you have nothing, you have everything. And emptied himself and spent himself, taking the form of a slave, coming in the likeness of men. You know, it keeps going. It keeps going. God, now he becomes a man. Not only a man, not a king man, not a kingly man, not a royal man, but a bond slave, a bond servant. And then it says, then humbles himself, comes to a point of obedience to death. Then it's not death by tuberculosis. It's not cancer. He didn't catch leprosy. He didn't do any of those things. He was death by the hands of an executioner who had perfected the shame and the punishment imposed on those who would die on the cross. Ligaments torn from end to end. Excruciating pain with every single breath. Stripped naked. Put there in public shame and humiliation. So he goes from God all the way up here where you can get no higher and he goes as low as you can go on this earth and becomes obedient to a man uh, becomes a man, becomes obedient to death, even the death on the cross, dies a death on the cross, suffers the wrath of God in hell that's imposed upon the unrepentant, goes as low as you can go, and so therefore, friend, you're covered. If you think you've gotten as low as you can go, I'll assure you, just look to Jesus and He'll be there and say, I'm down here lower. If you think somehow or another you're higher than Him, just look to Jesus and He'll look up and say, I'm down here higher. 
It went from God to man. That, wasn't, that, that didn't satisfy the righteous requirements of God and the wrath that was imposed upon sinners that you and I deserve that He suffered in our place. No, He went on and said He became a man. Not only that, you've got to be a servant. Not only that, you've got to be a bond slave. Not only that, you've got to die a brutal death as if you were a criminal treated like that on behalf of all criminals, which includes you and I. This is the creed. This is the confession. This is the profession of the church of the living God. This is it. Now look at this. Look at 1 John. You had to turn do a little Bible drill stuff here. Look at 1 John chapter 4. Humility. Humility. We've got to have it before we're ever going to be unified as a people of God. We have to humble ourselves. And boy, I'm telling you, the plumb line of humility is the cross of Jesus Christ. Every, every, every way you want to live should be measured by the cross. Every relationship you have should be measured by the cross. Every attitude that you have should be measured by the cross. Every interaction that you have with anyone else should be measured by the cross. It's the plumb line of eternity. It is the point of reference. It is the place where understanding comes from. It is where we get communicated to us what God's like in no other way than the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 John chapter 4. This confession is so important. Look what it says. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Watch. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is very operative in the world. We don't know if the Antichrist is alive or not. Maybe so. Maybe as some would contend that God allows and permits an Antichrist to be raised up in every generation because the enemy doesn't know when he's coming back, so he's got to have, always have one ready. I don't know. That makes sense to me. But the spirit of Antichrist is pervasive. We're going to make it better. It's Tower of Babel theology. It says, man, let's build the tower as big as we can get it. Let's go as high as we can go. Let's stretch as far as we can stretch. We can make this world better. We can get rid of poverty. We can get rid of disease. We can get rid of it. We can have a utopia here on earth. We just flat don't need God. The Christian message is unique and it's confessional. It is this. Jesus Christ became a man. Anybody who confesses that He's not God, He's not a man who became a God. He's been God all along. He always has been God. He's God now and He always will be God. He's the Creator God of this universe. When He was a little fella and His dad was teaching Him to build a stool, that same little fella who was learning how to build a stool created the solar system. This is the confession of the church. Anything other is the spirit of Antichrist. Mark it down. Any spirit that comes against the truth that we just read in Philippians chapter 2 is not of God. Look at 2 John, verses 7 through 10. Turn right and go over to 2 John, 7 through 10. And this spirit is pervasive right now. It's pervasive. It's pervasive in the halls of our government. 
We can come together. Let's somehow another form a world coalition where we can kind of put aside our differences and, and kind of focus in on where our strengths are. Let's put this thing together. Let's fix it. Let's make it right. That is nothing other than the spirit of Antichrist. Nothing's going to be made right until the Prince of Peace sits on his throne. Down here. He's already on it up there. Amen. Look at first John. I'm at second John seven through ten. It says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess that Jesus, listen, do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things which we work for, for that we may receive a full reward. In other words, hang on to this confession. Hang on to it. Don't lose it. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Philippians chapter 2. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. It couldn't be clearer. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. This is the confession of the church. Look at Matthew chapter 16. Look at Matthew chapter 16. Boy, our, our, the Catholics just ruined this text. But I'm going to tell you something right now. Look at this. Look at Matthew chapter 16. You'll recall. You know what happened there. Let's read in verse 13. When Jesus came into the reason of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and other Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter asked Him and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen? He didn't say he was going to build the church on Peter. He said he was going to build the church on Peter's confession. Thou art the Christ! You have come. You're the anointed one. You're the deal. There's not another one. You're the second Adam. You're the son of the living God. You're our liberator. You're our Messiah. You're our Savior. You're the appointed one. You're the prophesied one. You're the one. There is no other. He said, that's so important. It is necessary to build my church on it. That's the cornerstone of the church. That is the confession of the church. That's the confession of this church. Jesus Christ is Lord. And then, here's where the rubber meets the road. I don't know that there's a single person in here that would take me to task. And it's not about me, but would take to task, I don't think, anything I've shared so far. Do you believe it to be scriptural? I didn't make it up. You know, I didn't have indigestion one night or anything like that. This is, this is from the Word of God. This is what the Word says, okay? We'll, we won't take it to task as far as confession, but sometimes we'll take it to task as far as the way we live. 
Don't you know that our lives should be radically different if this is true about the Son of God? If this is what we believe about the Son of God, should our lives not be radically different? We talked about how that's manifests itself in relationships. This should be the standard by which all relationships are measured. Is Jesus coming and emptying Himself of His rights as God. Emptying Himself of all His possessions even though He owned everything. And coming down here and humble Himself to the point of obedience even to death on the cross as a common criminal who was very much uncommon and certainly not a criminal. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It is the unique message of Christianity. The unique message of Christianity is this. Man does not seek God. Man doesn't care anything about God. In his natural state, born in Adam, in sinful flesh, under the condemnation of being born in Adam, man doesn't appreciate God, doesn't want to know God, says no thanks to God. As a matter of fact, there's room enough for more gods. Says, By the way, get over God because I'm God too. And that the confession of the church is this. Man does not seek God. God seeks man. If He hadn't come to you and convicted you of your sin and made you know of the one in whom He had sent and the identity of the one in whom He had sent and give you the gift of repentance and faith, you will be lost in your sin, helpless and dead in your trespasses. He has made you alive together with Him. That's why the Reformers had it right. Sola, Gloria, all the glory goes to Him. Amen? This is the confession of the church. This is our creed. This is our, this is our, this is the hill to die on. We will die on this hill because Jesus died on it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. But that confession should lead to action if it's real. That confession should lead to transformation if it's real. If it's really embraced, it will transform. If the message of the gospel is anything, it is a transforming message. It does manifest itself into changed life. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If that's the standard of measure by which we judge, it'll elevate your marriage. You'll realize that your marriage is not just for procreation. It is for procreation. That is how God has ordained and chosen to multiply and, 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 to, and to continue the human race on as long as He deems it uh, to, to go on. He's sovereign over that. But it's much more than that. Your marriage is about the gospel. Your relationship with your children is about the gospel. Your relationship between your employee and employer is about the gospel. Everything you are and everything you do and every realm you travel in is about the gospel. Every bit of it. It's this, this right here is the plumb line by which you should measure those relationships. Look at Titus chapter 2. Now we've been talking about this, about the wife submitting to the husband and the husband loving the wife the way Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. We've been talking about the permission you have, ladies, the permission and the grace that's been afforded to you to submit to your father, I mean to your husband, because Jesus submitted to the Father. Right? The pattern of your submission is this. Jesus, equal with God, did not hold on to His rights as God, but emptied Himself of it and came under the authority of the Father. Wife, equal with husband, equal with husband in every measure, value and worth, whatsoever, on any level, 
willingly, as Jesus did, comes under the authority of the husband for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. Let me tell you how important that is. Watch this. This should govern your relationships. Look at, look at Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men may be sober, reverent, temper, but temperate, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the young, people, young women to love their husbands and to love their children. Can I ask you a question? You ever think in the context that an older woman should be used of God to teach a woman what you think the woman should be naturally doing? Do you, do you think, why would it be necessary to teach the younger women to love their husbands and love their children? Now, I can make a case for it. And don't laugh about this. I can see what they can have to teach them to love their husbands. Because, buddy, I'm often unlovable. But as far as teaching a woman to love their children... But see, what kind of love is this? It's agape. This is not filio. This is not a fond affection for your child. This is agape. This means that you're willing to sacrifice your life for their spiritual benefit. And the older women should encourage the younger women to do it. Love your husbands. When he's lovable, no. No qualification. We're often not lovable. Love their children to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. And watch this. Here's the piano point. Ladies, here's how important this is. That the Word of God may not be blasphemed. That is what is at stake. It means that a wife who is not submissive to her husband Christian people we're talking to here. A wife who is not submissive to her husband blasphemes the gospel. Now, I know enough about most Christian women I've been around and I don't believe that the average Christian woman wants to live a life of blasphemy against the gospel. But I also believe that they've probably not been informed biblically of what they're doing. And now that you know, you're going to be held accountable for it. In other words, if you don't submit to your husband, your equal did not regard the quality of God suddenly be held on to, but willingly put yourself under the, Lord, the leadership of your husband because of the lordship of Jesus, that is a picture of the gospel. It confirms the gospel. See, to not do it casts doubt on our confession. Do you see it? Oh no, He didn't come in the flesh. Oh no, He didn't humble Himself like that. He's God. God would never do that. God would never do that. That's beneath God. I don't want to... Hey, that's how the, the Jews... Had, he was a stumbling block to the Jews. You know why? The Bible says in, in dealing with a rebellious... According to the law, in dealing with a rebellious teenager... You know what you're supposed to do with a rebellious teenager? Take him in front of everybody. Have his family escort him out there. Stone him to death. That's what it says. But then it says, Cursed is everyone who dies on the tree. See, the, the biblical principle is this. Jesus was stoned to death for your rebellion. He took your place. He's the one that took the bullet. But it says, Cursed is everyone who dies on the tree. That's why a Jew is so perplexed. The gospel is a stumbling block to them because they were taught all their life, whoever dies on the cross, whoever dies on the tree is accursed. 
They're, they're to be scorned. They're to be dismissed. And yet, you want me to bow to Him? But see, when you don't live like that, when you don't come under the husband's authority, not because you're less, you're equal. But you don't regard it as quality. It's something to be held on to. But you're willing to empty yourself. When you do that, you're a living, breathing confirmation of the gospel. To live not like that. I'm not talking about just an attitude. I'm not talking about just an action. I'm not talking about just a mouth. I'm talking about an attitude. I submit to my husband because I submit to my Lord. If you don't submit to God's delegated authority, it means you're not in submission to His inherent authority because they're one and the same. And he put that there. Oh, if you could just get this sweet lady. And the ones that are younger who will come along. Encourage them like my grandmother encouraged my mother. And I gave you the example. Love him. Love him. Don't quit loving him. And then my dad wound up becoming a Christian before he died. Otherwise, I couldn't stand here and have any confidence he was in heaven. You know why? Because my mother's testimony confirmed the gospel. It wasn't contradictory to it. To God be the glory. You see? You see what's at stake? We laugh about these things. Why does the devil go after this? Why does the secular age try to lure women into the, into the trap of asserting their rights? Oh, I've got rights. You're not going to share that with me. I've got rights. You know why? Because it blasphemes the gospel. It maligns the gospel. No, that confession, see... If the confession is real, it will lead to conduct. But if our conduct does not change, it casts out on our confession to those who are lost. Don't we aim low in Christian marriage? Don't we aim low? We're just looking for longevity. Hey, nothing wrong with longevity. Don't send me an email. Nothing wrong with longevity. I'm into longevity. I hope my wife is. Pray for her. I'm into longevity. But I'm going to tell you something right now. That's low! That's low! That's low! That's a low standard. That's not your standard, Christian. Your standard is the Gospel. Your standard is a confession that leads to change in conduct. Your standard is the Gospel of Jesus Christ that liberates somebody for. Ever. I want to encourage you. This is what's at stake. You know what's at stake? What's at stake is the glory of God. Jesus goes into the temple and he, and, he, and he takes all the money changers and He turns their tables. You know the story. He did it twice in the, in the Gospel. I love to read that story because it's kind of like, you know. I mean, Jesus is not some mamby-pamby. You know what I mean? He went in there and just took, took care of business. Perfect balance because He's a perfect man. I can tell you one thing. You know why he went in and did that? He said, here you are merchandising the gospel. Here you are prostituting worship. And you know what worship's going to cost me? My life. I'm going to purchase their right to worship and it's going to cost me my life. As a matter of fact, if I don't die, none of you get to worship. He said, I'm here for the glory of God. Make your marriage for the glory of God. Christian, live for the glory of God. It's about Him. Look what it says here. Exhort a young man to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. How many young men do you know of that show 
doctrinal reverence, incorruptibility, and integrity. We aim so low with our students to say, man, just, you know, let's just go down here to deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep. If you just get out of there and know deep and wide, you're all right. No, we're to aim. So that means that's talking about a 12-year-old boy, a 12-year-old young man. That's why we're doing the Roman study with you guys, man. And so you can take that Roman study and teach your sons the Romans road. To teach them doctrine, the major doctrines of the Christian faith that will anchor them forever. That's why we're doing that study. To anchor you and to let those that are under your care be anchored as well. He said, listen, so they'll have sound speech so they make that cannot be condemned. You can't cast doubt on it because he's got biblical convictions that are well anchored in the truth. That one who is opponent, that the one who is an opponent may not be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you. If your speech is not corrupted because it's biblically based. Otherwise, if your speech is not biblically based, it's not it's corrupted. Tozer said, hear from no man who's not heard from God. Be careful who you listen to. Exhort bond servants. Here we go again. The standard by which all these relationships should be made. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing good fidelity that they may what? Here is the crux of the whole text. This is it. You know what I mean? You know what that says? That their lives may adorn the gospel. It's the picture of a woman who gets all dressed up for her husband. Gets the hair just right. The makeup applied just right. Whatever she or whatever whatever. And, and just just right. And wants to be adorned for her husband. It is that picture. The gospel should be appealing to lost people by the way you and I live our lives. And that's most manifested in these relationships. If you're an employee and you constantly gripe and fuss about bosses who are unreasonable, quit. Don't quit your job. Quit fussing. Quit. Ask God to give you the grace to not only submit to them in outward words. And a lot of you might to their face go, yes. And then they turn their back and go, sorry, thank you. No, let it be yes. And then when they turn their back, go, yes. Yes, Jesus. Thank you for the grace that was imposed upon me to be in this situation. Thank you that you've put me here so that you can be seen through my life, witness, and confession. Thank you that you did come to earth and humbled yourself. And because you humbled yourself, guess what? I can humble myself too. Thank you for doing that for me. Unreasonable people are a part of life. And it's just the devil. And he's putting that thing on you and he's hitting you and he's taunting you. I start your rights, man. You ain't got to put up with this. Enough's enough. Come on, man. Stretch. Get out of this mess. You ain't got to put up with this. That's not from the Lord. No. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, the devil of the cross. Husbands, we're going to get to this. and I've been trying to get to this for three weeks and I haven't been able to. Second Peter chapter 3. We talked about this. This is so important. See, the dynamics, here's 1 Peter chapter 3, the dynamics between husband and wife, employer and employee, children and, and parents, honoring the parents we talked about last week, these dynamics should be measured, governed, and, listen now, listen here carefully, it should be measured, governed, and supplied with the life of Jesus Christ manifest in Philippians chapter 2. He's the fulfillment. Get this. We talked about this before. He's the fulfillment of everything He requires of you. It is too much for you 
But it's not too much for Him. If you'll submit. And we adorn the gospel. But look at it. Look at, see, so here's the thing. You take all these dynamics. You take the relational dynamics. And wherever things are awry in your relationships, it doesn't mean, here's how we define relationships. Relationships are operating at their best when everybody around me is doing what I think they ought to do. That is, that's what we say. We wouldn't say that. Nobody would say that because you do what you're doing now and laugh. But functionally, that's how we operate. I can be, I can adorn the gospel. I can be a witness in this environment. As long as everybody is doing exactly what I think they should do. I can get along in the home. And, and, and I'm, everything's going to be fine. And we'll be Jesus and sweet and love. As long as everybody's doing exactly what I think they should do. Well, guess what? That seldom, if ever, happens. And if people are not doing what you think they ought to do, it's probably not them that's in most need of change. It's probably you. Or at least God's using them to change you, and you don't even know it. All right, now watch this. Husbands. So these dynamics, let me say this, I have to qualify this. These dynamics that we're talking about, don't measure them based on these kind of relationships. Measure them based on this relationship. Wherever things are awry between mom and dad and you, you go back to Jesus and say, Jesus, what do you want to do in me? Not in them, in me. When things are awry between employee and employer, Jesus, you, what do you want to do in me? Start with me first. Uh, look at the text, gentlemen. Gentlemen, ladies, you can check out. Y'all can be uh, functionally dismissed right now. It says, husbands... By the way, before we get into it, adorning the gospel like we talked about in weeks prior is so important and so powerful that a wife who chooses to do it, who is married to an unbeliever, increases the probability that her husband will get saved and she'll do it without saying one word. You know why? Because her life will be confirmation of the gospel and not contradictory. In other words, you confess that Jesus came. I don't believe in him yet, wife. But if he came, and if you say what you say you believe about him, why do you live the way you live? They might not ask you that question, but I promise you, it's in there. They're asking it. That's how big this is. In other words, this is a wife who adorns the gospel. And this is a husband here. He speaks to the husband. And guys, listen, heads up. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. I've gone over that text countless times. And here's what I believe the Lord wants us to learn today from this text. First of all, you're heirs together in the grace of life. It took just as much grace and just as much mercy, and just as much blood from Jesus to save me as it did my wife. Because I'm the spiritual leader in the home does not mean I'm superior to her. We're heirs together of the grace of life. We're heirs together in the ability to procreate and, and have children, or maybe have children under our watch care, adopt children, whatever we're doing. We're heirs together in that grace to take care of the seed of the woman. We're heirs together of that. That's a grace. That's an unmerited favor. All right? All right? We're heirs together. But then he says, watch this. 
She's the weaker vessel. She is the weaker vessel. We're to appreciate those weaknesses, but we are not to use those weaknesses to be embittered toward her. And here's the issue. Here it is right here. This is a bit of a joke. We're going long. Hang with me. I'm going to take that clock down, so just have that one. Uh, there you go. A friend of mine and his wife, her husband, a friend of ours and her husband were music evangelists. And they were at a church. And I've told you this story probably before. And they were at a church. And they had prayer time. And it was open mic. Sometimes that can be dangerous. You don't know what you're going to get. And this was one of those times. So a woman gets up and says, Pastor, I'd like for you to pray for that man. Like that. And her husband's sitting right beside her. He needs to change. Like that. And just... Although this is reverse, what he's saying right there is, don't pray for your wife like that. God, I pray for that woman. You know why? Because you're asking for legitimate changes that need to take place in her life. Not for her benefit, but for yours. That's what that means. Change my wife. Because she's making my life miserable. That's what he's saying. See, here's what we can learn. See, what, Let me tell you what we can learn about intercession. Here's what we can learn about intercession. This is what we can learn about intercession. From this text, intercession is fueled by, anchored by, and must have empathy. It must have empathy. You cannot intercede for somebody that you don't empathize with. You have to see them as in need of grace like you. And your prayers for them to change, even though their need for change affects you, is not for your benefit. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, it is for theirs. Then the Lord hears. All right, who's the standard bearer for that? Who do we go back to? Does that sound familiar? Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? What does the Bible say of him? Ever lives to make intercession for us? We have a high priest, right, Patty? He's on the Father's right side. And how does he handle the intercession? God, I've had just about enough of goober-headed Lindsay Lewis. And he's gone around this road a thousand times and he still doesn't get it. Because see here, God could legitimately say that of me. No. Father, thank you that you're merciful and compassionate. And long-suffering. I draw upon what I know of you because I am you. I draw upon the love that you have. I draw upon the compassion that you have. I went down there and I became a man, Father. I know what he's dealing with. I know what makes. I know what motivates his fears. I know what motivates his his anger. I know it. I know all of that. And I'm not trying to excuse it away. But continue to stretch it out and be patient with him. I sympathize with what he went. We have a high priest who is not unsympathetic toward our weaknesses, but was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Therefore, he can effectively intercede for those who have weaknesses like us. And that should be the standard husband by which you pray for your wife. 
Ever let it be, God changed this contentious woman to make my life better. God imposed grace upon my wife and anchor her in who she is as your daughter and help that truth to be established and anchored into her heart so much so that she realizes that submission does not take away from who she is, but submission reinforces who she is. Don't do it for my benefit. You know why? Because agape love means you're willing to lay down your life for the spiritual benefit of other people. That's what it means. I asked for a show of hands. I said, ladies, who in here would like to live a life that blasphemes God? None of you raise your hand. None of you. Adorn the gospel. Confirm it. Don't, don't live contrary to it. Let that confession change conduct because that's a confession upon which the church is built. It's foundational truth that the church rests on. And it liberates you not to live according to the dictates of your own heart. It liberates you according to live according to the dictates of His. Husbands, do you even pray for your wives? One Sunday, I know we're going long, but I don't, that's the last time I'm going to apologize for that. Let me tell you this. A couple of, a couple of months, several months ago, several, many months ago, Okay, let's get it far enough so that nobody looks around and goes. Many months ago, we asked during our intercessory prayer time for the husbands to turn around and pray for their wives. I did cheat and looked around and there were some that were sitting there as stiff as they could be, shaking like a leaf. I don't say that to be critical. I just say that that means that apparently that's not habitual. And must have even been rare in that home. And there were several of them like that. It was a state of uncomfortableness. It was. Husbands, if you ever want to intercede for your wives, if you want to be heard, if you want the windows of heaven to be open and flung open, you deal with her compassionately. You don't go in there and say, there's a new sheriff in town. By the way, I'm taking over. Shame on you. Jesus didn't treat you like that. You don't want him treating you like that. I promise you that. Your wife doesn't need to be treated and doesn't deserve to be treated like that either. Love her. Reach out. Compassion and mercy. She's an heir together in grace of life. Most of you are wretched apart from Christ and had to be saved the same way. You want to intercede? Intercede. Intercession to this church. Ask the Lord before you intercede for another. Lord, take away every opinion I have of that person. Strip it away from me. Just absolutely mortify it in me. So that I can get your heart and your mind on how to pray for Chad or Brian or Patty or whoever it might be. Boy, then the Lord will give an attentive ear because we'll be most like His Son. We will confirm the gospel. We will not live wives that are contrary to it. Can I say this to you? I'm going to issue a challenge to you. Have your children memorize. I'd have your children memorize Philippians 2, 5-11. through because that is the confession of the church. That is the confession upon which it is built. It is the rock that holds it up. And if we believe that confession and we're anchored in that confession, oh dear one, it will change our conduct. Amen.